Thank you, Brian, for sharing, and Jerry for leading us and the rest of you in worship. It is, I'm one happy mom, I just have to say it. I've got kids home, and I've seen some of the rest of you home from college, and I know that uh, I've talked to some of the parents whose kids are coming home later today, so welcome to each of you. And we had uh, some guests over not too long ago on a Sabbath afternoon. And after lunch, we were in the backyard looking at the garden and orchard, and my friend looked over the fence to our next-door neighbor's yard and kind of squinted her eyes, and she said, what is that? Now, our next-door neighbors are Steve and Sheila Morrow, um, and it just so happens that there's a story behind this. Uh, we have raccoons in our neighborhood. We share the neighbors, uh, the, the yard and the property with them. And they tend to really like Steve and Sheila's house because Sheila feeds all the neighborhood cats. <laughs> and Sheila has her own precious cats inside, but she takes care of all the other cats as well. And so we have a dog. I think the raccoons just figure they don't want to come to our house, so they live at, at Steve and Sheila's house. And it's a problem because they were eating all the food for the cats. And so one Sunday I went outside and I looked across and here they were building this great big contraption. It works really well because the cats have to jump. Like they have to make a couple jumps before they can get up and they get their food. And the raccoons can't jump and they don't get fed. So sometimes when we hear a story, it helps us to expand and understand uh, what is going on a little bit better. Stories help us to shed light on, on what the circumstances are. So today we're going to talk about stories. It starts with a story of a group of people who were camped out at the Jordan River. Now they had been there before. They had left Egypt 40 years before. They had come to the land of Canaan and they had sent in their 12 spies and ten of them came back with a bad report and said, no, we can't go. And because of that, God had sent them back to the wilderness for 40 years. And finally now, it was time for them to go in and reclaim this, reclaim this country that God had promised to them. But, first of all, they sent in a couple spies again. They sent in two this time who went into Jericho. You remember the story. Rahab protected them, hid them, and got them out of the city. And the spies came back to the children of Israel and said, let's go. The whole land is melting in fear because of us. And so Joshua called the people together in, in Joshua 3.5. It says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among us. Great anticipation of what was to come. Well, so they started moving toward the river. They were there on the banks. They didn't know how they were going to get across. The Jordan River actually sometimes of the year is, has quite a small amount of water running through it. But this was in the spring, and it was at flood stage. There was lots of water coming. Patriarchs and Prophets says that God wanted the passage to be miraculous. So it was planned when there was lots of water. 
Now, just about a month before this time, Numbers tells us, it was still when Moses was alive, Moses and Eliezer had done a census of the children of Israel. They had counted who was there. And they had counted 601,000 men. Now, that didn't count the Levites, so that added another 23,000. So we're talking almost 625,000 men. If you double that conservatively and say, okay, there were probably twice that many because of the women, we're talking 1.25 million people. Now, I, was, I have a hard time comprehending how many people that is. So I was trying to think of big venues that I'm familiar with, and I thought of the Honda Center. The Honda Center seats 17,400 people for a sporting event. And it's huge. Don't you agree? If you've been there, you know it takes a long time to get people in and out of there. This was seven times that many people. They were trying to get from one side of the river to the other. So they got ready the next morning, and the priests set out. Now, the Bible tells us that God and Joshua instructed the rest of the people to stand back, almost a half a mile, actually. So they were looking at a great distance, but because of that distance, it allowed many, many more people to see what was happening. And so the priests walked forward. They were carrying the ark, because the ark was the symbol of the fact that God's presence was going before them. As they walked forward, the river was flowing in front of them. The moment the priest stepped foot in the water, it says the water piled up in the town of Adam, which was about 17 miles upriver. Suddenly, the town of Adam was flooded as the Jordan River became dry land. And so they started walking. The priest went out to the middle of the river, and while they stood there, the rest of the people crossed over. Now, I could, had always imagined, maybe from pictures in Bible story books, that this was maybe a fairly narrow part of the river that dried up. But most of the commentaries say it was probably several miles wide. If you can imagine uh, that many people needing to cross, that made it a, a lot more efficient. And so, while the people passed, the priests stood in the middle of the river. Finally, they got all across, and Joshua 4 says, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men, one from each tribe, and tell them to take twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing. And carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. Now I'm thinking after the Israelites got across that Joshua kind of looked around and said, all right, I want the biggest guys here. We've got to have some good rocks. And he asked them to go and get a stone to bring to the camp. Why? Here in verses 21 and 22, it says, In the future, when your children ask you, 
what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So these great, strong men went. They got those stones. They came to the other side. And then the priests came out. And as soon as they stepped on the banks of the river, the river started flowing again. What a miracle. And God did not want them to forget it. They had forgotten before. You remember, right after they had crossed through the Red Sea, they were out in the desert complaining that maybe God, you know, had made a mistake. So he instructed them, I want you to take those stones right from the middle of the river and build an altar. I suspect it was kind of strange looking. Do you have an image of what biblical altars look like? I have, I'm sure it comes from Bible storybooks, but I have these picture of these nice, well-hewn stones that are kind of evenly uh, shaped, and they've got nice, smooth sides on this altar. I don't suppose that's what this one looked like. He had chosen 12 different people to go out into the middle of the river and grab a rock. I suspect some of them were stronger than others, so there may have been some bigger rocks and some smaller rocks. And I suspect it looked a little strange. I think that's the way God intended it. Because the point was, when your children see this pile of stones, I want them to ask, what is it? We don't ask questions about things that look normal, right? If we go back to the cat story, the cat feeder next door, when my friend looked out at Steve and Sheila's backyard, she didn't ask about the waterfall or the table or or the statuary, those things all looked like they belonged. She looked at the thing that caught her attention that was unusual, and she said, what is that? So when God had those people build that altar with the stones, I think he wanted it to look strange, so that people would be curious and say, what is it? When those kids were out playing in the yard and they went home at night, they said, Mom, I saw the funniest pile of stones out in the field. What is that? And that gave them an opportunity to tell the story. There is something powerful in telling stories and in the way that we tell them. John Gottman is a, mar a noted marriage researcher, and he's conducted many studies on married couples. And he's developed quite a list of things that he can use to predict whether or not a couple will divorce. Interestingly enough, he's correct about 94% of the time. And one of the things that he looks for is the way that people tell stories. Because he finds that in a, when a couple tells their story with positive emotions, they are much more likely to have a lasting marriage than if a couple tells their story with criticism. See, the way that we remember actually affects the way that our future goes. One of my favorite things is when people come over to our house, or we have just met people, and sometimes people will ask Jim and I how we met. And it's so fun, because as the story starts to come out, this joy bubbles up, and it is so great. It's a good story. 
Actually, there's two stories, depending on who you ask. <laughs> but it's great fun. Stories are so powerful. They anchor us to the past, and they give us hope for our future. They can shape our future. One of my favorite quotes comes from Life Sketches, where Ellen White says, We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. It's good to think about and to tell how God has worked in our past. And as we retell our stories, it helps us remember. In the early 2000s, the educational system started publishing research about the power of having children retell stories that they heard in school. The whole idea was you have a child read a story, and then they retell what they heard because it reinforces the story and helps them to remember the details. It helps with retention. If we don't tell a story, we tend to forget it. When something happens to us, we are sure we will never forget, but we do. When our kids were little, we lived up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and every few weeks, I would sit down at the computer and write a letter of all the cute things they had done and said. You know, they were really exceptionally cute. <laughs> I would send this off to my family, and I would print a copy and put it in this. I had this red notebook. And so over time, I got quite a stack of papers of stories that had happened. And I remember writing them and thinking, this is, so, I want, you know, it's no use to even print a copy for me because I will never forget. Well, I quit writing those when they turned five or six, and that book got put away. And a few years later, we found it, and I remember pulling it out at their 16th birthday and sitting down and reading these stories. And we laughed until we cried. They were so funny. <laughs> and some of the stories I had no recollection of. I couldn't believe I had written them. I had lived them, and I didn't remember we were, they were about four years old, and we were living next door or down the street from a woman named Gail. And I read this story of how I had been sewing a vest for this neighbor lady. I don't even remember sewing for a friend. And Lisa walked into the room one day while I was sewing, and she looked over at me, and she said, Mommy, Gail's going to be impressed. <laughs> I felt pretty good. I was like, well... She recognizes great work when she sees it. And she started to walk out of the room, and she turns around, and she says, Mommy, what does impressed mean? <laughs> I had forgotten that. How could I forget? There was another story that I remembered that I had retold. We were driving north to see my parents in Oregon, and we had, on the freeway, we had passed this business where they were selling these huge fiberglass pre-built pool, swimming pools. And uh, Mark was looking out the window and he says, Mommy, there's a bathtub. And I said, oh no, that's not a bathtub, that's a swimming pool. He says, no, Mommy, it's a bathtub for cows. <laughs> so the stories that we retell, we remember. And the ones that we don't, we tend to forget. 
So how important is it for us to share the stories of how God is working in our lives? Now, the way that we tell a story makes a difference as well. Have you listened to somebody tell a story that kind of pulls you down? Truthfully, some people have the ability to take almost anything and make a sad story out of it. It's not all that great. My nana, my grandmother, who lived to be 100, and she had the ability to remember well. I remember when she was in her early 90s, we were all going to gather at my folks' house in Eugene, Oregon for Christmas. And she lived a couple hours north in Portland, and she was going to get up on the morning of Christmas Eve and drive down to Eugene to be with us. So my siblings and all of our families were there at my parents' house, and we got up on the morning of Christmas Eve, and there was a terrible ice and snowstorm. My grandma lived on a steep driveway. There was no way she was going anywhere. So we're on the phone with her. We're like, oh, Nana, I'm so sad. You can't be with us. I just felt so bad. But here she was alone in her house. She's like, oh, don't feel sorry for me. I've just been sitting here remembering all the wonderful Christmases we've had together. What a fabulous way to remember. In my distant past is a story that I love to tell. It is one of the most powerful moments that I can remember in God's work in my life. I, was, I had moved from Oregon down here to Loma Linda to go to nursing school. And at the end of my junior year, I decided that I would go to Oregon and spend one more summer at home because the next year I would graduate and get a, a job. And so I was looking forward to that. But before I could do that, I, had to, I flew home for my little sister's graduation from eighth grade. And then I had to come back and take my final exams and then go home for the summer. So I was up there. She was the class president. And the morning of the graduation, she asked me if I would go out to the school and help her to decorate. And so uh, we walked in the front door of the school, and the very first person I saw was an old boyfriend. Now, it just brought up all kinds of trauma for me. And it was not a good experience. And I, the, I went home after we were done decorating, and my mom was out picking berries in the backyard. And I went down, and I started picking with her, and I said, Mom, I don't know if I can do this. That was hard. I don't know if I can be home for the summer and have to deal with this on a regular basis. And she looked over at me. She said, well, why don't you get a job in Loma Linda? I said, well, how could I? I'm not, I don't have an RN degree. I'm not skilled. There's nobody who would hire me for three months. Those words were no sooner out of my mouth than my little sister came to the door and said, Kathy, you've got a phone call. I went up, answered the phone. It was Clarence Schiff. Clarence was the young adult pastor at the university church at the time, and I had been working with him on some doing some volunteer work with the young adults there at the church. He said, Kathy, I just got word that my secretary has quit. I'm wondering if there's any chance you'd change your mind and come and work for me for the summer. Unbelievable. Probably the most dramatic experience that I've ever had. 
And when I recall that story, it helps me remember. And those stories come sometimes from our distant past, and sometimes we have things happen in our more recent past. Just a few weeks ago, I was uh, at work at the medical center, and we have a program called No One Dies Alone. It's a volunteer program where people from the community can come in and sit with our patients who have no friends or family at the time of their death. And we had a vigil going on on one of our units, and I like to go and check in with the volunteers at some point while they're there and make sure they're doing okay. And several times through the day, I got up from my desk and would get to my door and was always interrupted. I think a couple times the phone rang, another time somebody was walking in my door, and I was so frustrated because I really wanted to get there to check in. Finally, about 4 o'clock, I said, I've had it. I have got to go. And I walked out my office door and onto one of the nursing units and ran smack dab into a nurse who looked like she was on the verge of tears. And as soon as she saw me, said, oh, you are just the person I needed to see. And we went in a room, and she ended up breaking down and telling me about the, the trauma that was going on with her son and her family and some of the things that were happening at work. And I looked back at the end of the day and thought, how many times did God have to stop me from going when I wanted to go? It is so incredible to be used and to know. Just listening to Brian's story this morning was such an encouragement to know that, that God speaks and we listen. It's easy to remember stories like that. But truthfully, most of us don't have experiences like that very often. How can we increase our awareness of God's work in our lives just on, in the regular stuff? Sometimes when I'm working out in the morning, I think about, I just start processing how it is that God has made our bodies. And just living with an awareness of what a gift he has given us in the muscles and tendons and bones. Wednesday morning, if you looked outside, there was an incredible sunrise. Absolutely beautiful. Sometimes we just need to acknowledge that, to thank God for the simple things. Some people say, no test, no testimony. In other words, if you don't have a really good story, it's not worth sharing. I don't think that's true. Many of us in this room have been tested. Some of you severely. Others have lived a pretty charmed life. But I, I believe that each person's story has equal validity. How can we remind ourselves to do this? To, to be aware of what God is doing in our lives. I have friends who often at the end of the day will sit down with their children and say, Where did you see God today? What a great question to live with on a daily basis. How would you answer that? We can, in a sense, maybe create family altars. This is a time of thanksgiving, and it's probably worth spending some time thinking about how you might do that this week and continue it on, start a new tradition. Uh, at the hospital several years ago, we uh, created a thanksgiving tree. We took a bare branch manzanita, put some 
colored leaves beside it and asked people to write what they were thankful for and hang them on the tree. You can do the same thing with a wreath. Take a straw wreath, take some leaves, tack them on after you have written what you're thankful for. You might want to just put a box on the hearth in the fireplace with some paper so that people can write things down as they think of them. Some families keep a blessing book. I, I also saw that one family has a blessings tablecloth for Thanksgiving that they put on the table. And uh, each person actually gets a colored marking pen on this white tablecloth and gets to write what they're thankful for. And when they bring it out the next year, they are reminded of what they did the last year. These are tools to help us remember. In a sense, they are altars of stone. We each have stories. As a church, we have stories. We have collective stories. As we have watched the way God's working with this transitional home that we're opening for young men. Uh, we told you last week we thought it was going to open before Thanksgiving, but uh, we actually have a firm date now. It's going to be December 17th. We kind of forgot, or I forgot, that uh, Pastor Feedy, who's going to be the RA, is leading out with Cruise for a Mission, uh, Cruise with a Mission, and so he won't be back until the 16th. We can't move these young men into the house and then not have anybody there to, to connect with them. So December 17 is our day, and it's just so fun when we see the way God is working. But what happens when you don't have a story? Truthfully, that's the case sometimes, isn't it? I think it's important for us to recognize that it, at times God seems pretty silent. Our neighbors over on the East Coast may be thinking about that right now with Hurricane Sandy. Homes destroyed and the power off and now it's been bitterly cold. You may be in the middle of one of those times where you find yourself crying out to God and get nothing. I don't have easy answers for that. There are days when I put my foot in the water, so to speak, expecting God to part the water. And he doesn't always respond like I think he will. He doesn't always empty the riverbed. He doesn't always heal our illnesses and our marriages. We watch loved ones die. Our boss hands us a pink slip. The bank sends a foreclosure notice. It's not easy. Jim and I have read a, a chapter from Nicole Nordeman's book this week on the book of Job. And she talked about going to a lament service at her church and just living with the lament. In the Psalms, we have examples of this. Psalm 13, 1 and 2 says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? It's a lament, and we feel it at times. It's always fascinating to me how in the Psalms, though, many times they end with a statement of praise. Verses 5 and 6 say, But I will trust 
in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. In other words, the Psalms often say things are awful. There is no evidence to the contrary. But still, I choose to believe. I often tell people, be as angry as you like with God. Just don't stop the dialogue. Keep talking. Keep listening. It may be that he's whispering and you haven't recognized his voice. Maybe you're looking for the wrong thing. When I was a kid, we often were traveling in the car, and my dad has very keen eyes. He would often see something that none of the rest of us could see. But we had this habit of driving down the road, and he would point something out, and we would usually miss it. And one day I was reading in the back seat, and I hear his familiar, Lock! And I looked up from my book, and there was this incredible sunset, absolutely spectacular and I sat there and just kind of reveled in it. And as we drove down the road, my dad said, wasn't that the most incredible buck you've ever seen? <laughs> Completely missed it. Because I was looking for something bigger. Sometimes God speaks in a still, small voice. Well, there's a whole sermon in that for, by itself, but I will say this. There is nothing I believe more than God is real, He is present, and He loves each one of us. I also believe there may be a special blessing for those who struggle. We think about how Jesus honored Thomas. When Thomas said, I need to see and feel in order to believe. And Jesus dealt with him so tenderly. He said, here, it's okay. You can touch. So no matter where you fall on that spectrum of belief, I'm going to make the same suggestion. Psychologists tell us that feelings often follow behavior and words. And so I think this may be helpful for every one of us. As you leave today, there will be people at the doors that will have some rocks for you. I invite you to take a rock. Keep it in your pocket or your purse. And when you see it and feel it, let it be a reminder to you of something for which you are thankful. Pause to thank God for his guidance. Let it trigger something. Let it trigger you to tell a story to somebody. Maybe it represents an answered prayer, or a healing, or a life turned around. Did you get a job? Or did you just find those keys? Or maybe you got a check in the mail. Let it remind you to just say thank you for a loving family, for a job in this economy. Or maybe you just want to hold on to it in the dark. Holding on to the promise that God will never, ever leave you. What does this stone mean? When I look at this stone, I think about coming to this church 17 years ago. We came here because Clarence Schilt was the pastor. We didn't know you. But we came because of Clarence. And when I think about the stones and the way God has worked in my life, I think of you. 
when I went through cancer a few years ago, I, Jim and I commented that we felt held, collectively held by a group of people who love God and love people. I feel so blessed to be part of this church. What does this stone mean? What is your story?